As we gather today, there are one billion people living as refugees. Written law is all too often a transgressor, and we are loath to even imagine radical hospitality, to imagine no one being excluded from what we call inclusion and belonging. To imagine a welcoming so basic it roots us. The idea that some people are not only unwelcomed, but also condemned by God is nothing new under the sun. The banality of hatred and fear persists. Radical inhospitality, one could argue, is often the practice of the day. A most common blasphemy, exalted in the name of justice. Think of a child in this era of mass criminalization, which includes mass imprisonment and mass deportation. Remember the seven-year-old who has been handcuffed around his upper arms because the steel intended for adult bodies is too big for his wrists. He has been tried as an adult, locked in a cell for 23 hours a day, and his only view is through a slot in a metal door meant for a food tray. Remember the baby who has been torn from her mother, who is seeking asylum. She has learned in the crossing that what we call the border is a scar on the earth and her cries are not being answered. I have been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately and thinking about the confessing church in relation to the Protestant Reich Church. How do we align when religion takes on the properties of an empire? If the life of Yeshua bin Yusuf is the essence of Christianity, read radical nonviolence, a la Hans Kuhn, doctrine that sanctions torture is a perversion. Frederick Douglass's words regarding Christianity as a slaveholding religion are relevant here. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide, he wrote that to receive the one as holy is to disavow the other. Cornell West's distinction between prophetic Christianity and Constantinian Christianity signals the same tension. Bonhoeffer reminds us the road divides for eternity at the gospel. When we know this and yet see how the gospel is disregarded among us, both in the world and in the church, then we may become fearful. It is ordinary to believe that the one who has transgressed is a kind of non-being. 
exiled from God and therefore not fully human or eligible for the rights we automatically grant those we do count human. It is commonplace to bow to the myth that violence is redemptive, to deny dignity and betray the scriptural mandate to align ourselves with those who are suffering. As if theology itself is imprisoned, our current crisis reveals profound alienation at every level. Alienation from ourselves, which often creates pathways of addiction and crime. Alienation from community, evidenced in abiding fear of the other, the terrorist, people who are elders, poor, queer, brown-skinned, mentally ill, not saved, not chosen, not citizens, and spiritual alienation in which traditional theology may be at odds with itself. Like many of you, I imagine, I draw inspiration from the Abrahamic traditions, all of which teach us through prophetic example to align ourselves with the isolated and condemned. In the face of soul-stirring suffering, otherwise known as the presence of evil, I am seeking an alternative theology to approach the mystery of pain in the human experience. Specifically, I call for a radical revisioning of Genesis 3 as an alternative to St. Augustine's concept of original sin. My point of departure is the claim that the way we do justice in the United States is deeply influenced by traditional Christian ideology, ideology that produces devastating effects and contains the seeds of transformative possibility. The search for the origin of evil and the explanation for human, especially infantile suffering, motivated St. Augustine's theology. He was devoted to the question of theodicy. How does one reconcile the presence and mystery of pain in the world with an all-powerful and benevolent God. Given our deep human longing to be free from pain, how are we to interpret the relentless chaos, conflict, and suffering of our time? Augustine's psychology of original sin, which has become normative, is a brilliant portrait of the plight of human suffering. It provides fundamental insight into human beings' experiences of alienation and deception. It makes sense that our nature is to love God, but somehow something that we are not quite aware of has been distorted, such that our experience is one of entrapment, agony, and being, being estranged from what we know to be the good. The presupposition that human beings exist 
in undeniable relationship to each other also resonates. But I want to move beyond the notion that we are being justly condemned by God, punished with the contagion of original sin eastward in Eden. So I propose forgetting and remembering as alternative constructs to punishment and grace in reading the metaphor of the fall. First, a note on Genesis, suffering, and evil. The Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition claims that the human person is created in the image of God. Indeed, the Genesis story begins by affirming the intrinsic worth of every human being made in God's image. Given how under siege women's bodies are at this very moment, I am consciously not invoking the second account of creation, Genesis 2, which Elaine Pagels reminds us inverts the biological birth process and attributes to the male the creative power of the female. Often used interchangeably when considering the Genesis story, suffering and evil, also known as sin, are fluid concepts. I am more interested in attending to suffering than defining evil. Unlike traditional theologians, I assume the devil is not real. Though I agree that most feel more safe with a scapegoat. We create an enemy because it is easier to think that there is an external cosmic force that holds power over our lives than to believe that demons are personifications of aspects of our inner world. Unlike evil, which is abstract, suffering is an experience near and palpable that implies non-judgment. It is also a primary experience rather than a category that is applied. And suffering, as opposed to evil, speaks to our relationality rather than our differences. Like Augustine, bearing witness to the presence of suffering inspires my reading of Genesis 3. Your eyes shall be opened. The serpent says to the woman that if she eats the fruit, she will not die. Instead, her eyes will be opened and she will be as God's knowing good and evil. Indeed, Eve does not die and her eyes are opened. But now sin has been born. Whether sin is best understood as a turning, ignorance, or forgetting, sin breeds suffering. What if the serpent is not lying? The serpent is just not forthcoming with knowledge. That is why it is subtle, elusive. The serpent weaves a web of half-truths that confound the mother of all living such that she desires a fruit that is bittersweet. Perhaps the serpent, an angel who has fallen from bliss and feeling betrayed by God, wants company in misery. 
The serpent knows that the woman will not really die, for as a creation of God, she is already as the gods, timeless and eternal, with her eyes open. But she will think she dies because what the serpent does not communicate is that the seed of the forbidden fruit is really the seed of time and the illusion of separation. The seed of time will allow Eve to know good and evil, but that same seed will cause her to forget her gnosis, the knowledge that ensues from her nature. She will not remember that she and all others are embodiments of the divine. The serpent neglects to mention that God wants to protect humanity from the terror of truth forgotten because God knows that the world of time delivers the brutal veil of dualism, which breeds violence. With Eve's birth into the world of time, she will not even realize that her wisdom has been forgotten. As soon as she swallows that seed, she will forget that she is wise to the fact that goodness and evil are not fixed. They arise mutually, and she will suffer, for the self in the realm of time is subject to demons of doubt, judgment, fear. It is the world of division where we try to belong and believe others are pariahs. Herein, forgetting, rather than God's punishment, accounts for the nature and tragic consequences of suffering. In this reading, memory, which could serve as a kind of grace, is needed to heal the human will. More simply, if we remember our source, we will know that the stranger we fear is actually the beloved, closer than our jugular vein. Confession. I learned more about humanity serving people than I did in any seminar in divinity school. For 11 years, I waited tables in affluent New York City restaurants, simple restaurant ethics, Bread and water are to be provided as a matter of course. Each time someone broke the bread I had offered and neglected to see me. Each time a person quenched her thirst without looking me in the eyes, I noticed. I noticed because eye contact is an opportunity to face the life before you and recognize Sanctity. There were, of course, many times when I offered water or wine and never tried or thought to make eye contact. As a worker in the hospitality business, my job was to be efficient and gracious. To do it well, I often avoided looking in the gaze of another's eyes. Humanity challenges and an effective waitress accommodates and sometimes it feels treacherous to pause and connect 
we turn away. It is safer not to see. Not only is it safer, it is terrifying to see. What if what we call God is present in the eyes before us? What if the source of our terror is the truth that there is ultimately no distinction between humanity and divinity such that we blaspheme, deny blessedness in and out of every day when we fail to recognize the divinity in the human being we encounter? The one we have called the enemy is really God and the one we have named the devil is actually ourselves. The familiar construct of self and other dissolves. And this yields yet another horror. Until we take responsibility for the violent effects of our eyes being open to deception, to imagine that God actually dwells in such human beings as we is to pronounce God's infirmity. And if humanity and divinity are not so distinct as we may imagine, that might mean that God is afraid. For in the world of time, we hate and we fear. We forget that separation is an illusion and distinguish not only between God and humanity, but also between creation, sustenance, and destruction. For it is too brutal to behold God and the self as all three. More often than not, we shy from the responsibility of being co-creators, fail to sustain community with respect to the dignity of all, and deny our participation in destroying the beloved universe. As we gather on this fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, let us ask ourselves, how do we bear witness to suffering? Inspired by ethical principles to be steadfast in our commitment to render the world more humane and just. How do we reconcile being focused on our cell phones when we know one in six children living in Boston is hungry on this cloudy morning? How do we worship a God who was a refugee, executed, naked, as a common criminal, and imprisoned the most vulnerable among us in the name of justice? Each of us I believe, embodies profound contradictions. As I worked to change policy that locks people in cages for illicit drug use, I served champagne to VIP customers as they sorted cocaine in cigar rooms protected by private security. Call it hospitality for the privileged. A wise friend reminds me that our job is to hold the pain of contradictions, to be resilient enough to accept the dissonance between what we know to be true and how we live. Because if we care about injustice and cannot tolerate lying to ourselves, the more we wake up, 
the worse it feels. Perhaps part of having our eyes open is to hold that pain and vigorously commit to what we believe. Proverbs 3.3 reminds us, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And in order to be love warriors and sustain our work for justice, for the beloved community, we must also insist on joy. Thank you.